Hey guys, it's Pete, the world's okayest starting strength coach and head coach of Starting Strength Orlando, the new reason to come to Orlando. And here's the rundown of all the events we have coming up. We have a seminar February 4th through the 6th with a few spots left. After that, April 1st through the 3rd, and then June 3rd through the 5th. For camps going on at Starting Strength Gyms, we have Oklahoma City with a squat camp on January 29th, and then we've just added a squat and deadlift camp at Starting Strength Austin on March 20th. Congrats to all the new gyms that are open, Beaverton, Oregon, Memphis, Tennessee, and Katy, Texas, outside of Houston. Also, Starting Strength Chicago is still running their pre-sale event, so get signed up for that. And for more information on any locations, head over to locations.startingstrengthgyms.com. Speaking of Starting Strength Gyms, we still need coaches. So, if you're interested in becoming a coach, head over to startingstrengthgyms.com, check out the coaching tab, fill out that form, and get connected with none other than in a capel. We will continue to grow, but we can only grow as fast as we can get coaches. And since we will not lower the standard for our coaching, it's important for us to grow and develop competent coaches. Join the coaching development class, learn how to become a coach, and get paid the medium bucks. Thank you for your time. And remember, guys, if you shake it more than twice, you're playing with it. Hey, everyone. I'm here with Will Morris. Will is my coach. He is a starting strength coach. He is a, uh, you're a DPT, right, Will? I am, yes. DPT. Um, he is stationed in Korea at the moment with the Army and uh, currently isn't able to do much based on all the, the nonsense with the COVID protocols. So lucky for us, he has some time to sit here and talk to us about a couple of rehab-related topics. Um, the, the purpose of this, of this particular conversation is to help those of you that are out there that have some sort of uh, uh, an, an issue that you're not able to get addressed um, through the standard channel. So if you've got a joint issue, a rehab issue, some, something like that, and um, you're, you're looking for alternatives, you know, because as a starting strength trainee, you've discovered that the standard narrative is, is, uh, may not be the most appropriate for your situation, then, then this conversation is for you. So first, some background. If you can see that cut, <clears throat> I just had neck surgery. So I had my C4, C5 vertebrae fused with a plate and screws and a cadaver bone. Um, and Will will we'll explain in, in more technical detail the nature of the injury and, and exactly what's going on there. But um, in terms of what caused it, so I was, was sleeping on airplanes as part of my job. I'd get up really early, fly from Singapore to Indonesia or Singapore to the Philippines, and I'd sleep like this. And I was 168 pounds at six foot two at the time. So this was about 80 plus pounds of body weight ago. Uh, and the structure is not designed to hold that amount of weight at that angle for that long. And so I had some, some disc issues and I was diagnosed with a herniated disc at that time. Um, I did not have surgery because it was painful, but I wasn't having any, uh, you know, numbness or loss of feeling, loss of function. So I, I rehabbed it with starting strength. I added about two inches of girth to my neck. Um, I was not able to compete or even participate in some of my favorite activities like jujitsu because of the neck injury until I did the program and got a lot stronger and made my neck thicker. And then, uh, I got a little bit cavalier with it. <laughs> so, um, about six years ago, I did a Muay Thai fight and in Muay Thai, you know, you're doing the clinch where someone's yanking down on your head uh, in the Muay Thai plum and trying to, trying to pull you uh, out of posture so they can control you. And then I ended up starting jujitsu again, and I've been doing jujitsu for about the last year. Um, and then one evening, a white belt neck cranked me. And I'm pretty sure it's impossible to determine the cause, but, but when that happened, I was like, fuck, I think that, that may have been the straw that broke the camel's back. Fast forward to that weekend, I'm in a lot of pain. Fast forward to the next week, I go over to Starting Strength Boise where I train, and uh, I try to overhead press. And I was like, what the hell is going on? I was struggling with the 45 pound bar. I was supposed to do something like 175 or 180 for six as my top set. And, um, and then I loaded up my first warm up at 95 and I could not overhead press 95 pounds. So, so I'll pause the story there for a minute. Um, Will, do you want to add anything about the nature of this, this injury, uh, your experience with it, how you've rehabbed them in the past, uh, any, anything to add so far? Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing that, uh, the first thing that you already kind of brought up, you just didn't, you just didn't talk about it at length was the fact that, um, this type of injury, if you even want to call it an injury is something that virtually all humans are going to have. 
all humans are going to end up with herniated discs in their neck. And it's really just kind of a flaw in, in the design or the evolution of the, the human body. So the, the cervical the cervical vertebrae are much smaller than the ones in the lumbar vertebrae, but yet the cervical, the cervical vertebrae and the cervical discs are subjected to a lot more, a lot more high energy stress than the lumbar vertebrae. And so, I mean, you've got a, I mean, for you, probably a 15 pound head for me, probably a 12 pound head um, sitting on top of this, this very thin structure, you know, and whenever you do things like you run or you're, you're in a Muay Thai fight and you're, you're stepping away from somebody, the, the velocity that your head moves um, is actually a lot faster than what you would think. It's like 3,600 feet per second or something like that is how fast your head can move. And you don't, you don't necessarily know how fast your head moves whenever you, whenever you run or whenever you're moving or something like that, because you have a reflex that's built into your, that's built into your, um, your software that keeps your eyes level on the horizon, right? So whenever you run, you get a fairly steady, you get a very, very fairly steady, uh, visual. Now there's, there's been individuals, uh, especially blast injuries from, uh, um, U.S. service members being deployed overseas that have knocked out that reflex and, uh, talking to one of the first individuals I ever worked with that had that, um, where they knocked out that reflex. Um, he said that whenever he would try to run, it was like watching the Blair Witch Project that whenever he ran, like the whole world just moved like this. And in any ways, it, it would make it would make him very nauseous because whenever he ran, like the whole world was moving. And that kind of reinforced that idea that whenever we run, our head moves a lot more than we think it does. And so anyways, you got these small discs, these small vertebrae, and they've got a lot of freedom of movement because you have to be able to move your head in a lot of different directions that your lumbar spine doesn't have to move. So we degenerate very fast in our in our um, cervical spine. So virtually all humans, virtually all humans before, before they die are going to have herniated discs in their neck. It's virtually a universal um, finding that we, that we see in people, but the, and they can be, they can cause pain, but the vast majority of people, uh, they're going to find that herniated discs are something that it, even if it does cause pain, that they're going to resolve on their own, usually within about six to 12 weeks um, and what's really interesting is the more severe the herniated disc is, the more likely it's going to resolve on its own. Now, that all, that all is predicated on a particular structure in the neck called the posterior longitudinal ligament. It's a very thick ligament that goes along the backside of the vertebrae, right? And that's kind of the last line of defense between the, the central canal where the spinal cord rests and where, where the vertebrae are. So whenever you have a high energy, um, a high energy injury, you get dropped on your head in jujitsu or something like that. The disc material can actually push through the posterior longitudinal ligament and end up in the in the central canal, or it can deform the posterior longitudinal ligament, and that's where you end up getting central canal stuff. Now, that doesn't typically happen. We don't see that happen in a lot of people. What happens more often is what happens with you or what happened with you is you have a, you have a herniated disc and over time you've kind of degenerated the, what's called the annulus fibrosis. So the, the rings of cartilage that hold the nuclear material, the, the stuff that sits in the middle of the disc, you've degenerated that so much over time that this, that this material just kind of herniates back and forth all the time. Right now, as it hits the posterior longitudinal ligament, it can't push through that. So what happens is it ends up deflecting out to the side. And because you have very little in, so, like uh, structural integrity of your annulus fibrosis, this herniated material then kind of pushed out one direction much farther than what it would do with most, most people who don't have this repetitive high energy trauma. And that's what ended up causing the significant nerve root impingement. So what I liked about what you said was you had neck pain, but you didn't have surgery for neck pain. You're, whenever you first reached out, reached out to me about coaching you, you were talking about having pain. And, you know, I kind of talked to you a little bit about it. You told me some of your history. But the second that you messaged me and said that you couldn't lift your arm, that's whenever I was like, I'm sorry, man, like you need to go to, you need to go to <laughs> neurosurgery. And it just so happened that you had your neurosurgery evaluation the very next day. Yeah. And that, that was really good to hear because um, there was an MMA mm -hmm. fighter named Boss Rutten who had a similar injury. 
and and I believe he didn't get it addressed either on time or at all. And um, that impingement of the nerve root caused his entire arm to atrophy. So he's got a normal muscular arm on one side, like a guy in his 50s or whatever age he is that's in shape, and then um, just a shell of an arm on the other side. And no shit, uh, I could not lift my left arm. I couldn't lift my hand over my head. Uh, and actually, this is quite difficult now, and we'll talk mm -hmm. about why that is in a bit and what Will is helping me do to rehab this injury. Um, but but when I spoke to Rip about this, his feedback was the same as Will's. It was, you need to get this addressed. And that was my instinct as well. And then Will reinforced that. Obviously, if you go to see a surgeon, the saying is, when you're a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. What are surgeons going to want to do? They're going to want to operate. Um, in some cases, that's the right thing to do. And with some surgeons, they'll give you good advice. But since you're talking to a stranger, you don't necessarily have the context to know how to navigate this. So, Will, let's, let's see if we can give people a sense of when surgery is necessary and when it's not for cervical injuries in, in general. Actually, let's just say spinal injuries in general. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'd have to preface it first by saying, like, you know, the, the decision to go and, and see a surgeon is one that whoever your primary care manager is, they're the ones who are going to make that recommendation, right? Because that, that tends to be the medical system that everybody works in, that they have their primary care manager. They go to see their primary care manager. Their primary care manager is the one who makes referrals. Um, and so that that physician makes the makes the determination whether or not you need to go see a surgeon. That being said, everybody everybody's a, their own their own advocate for their for themselves, right? And just because you go and see a surgeon doesn't necessarily mean that you need to have surgery or that it's already written in the stars that you need to that you need to have surgery. Um, for spinal injuries, whenever I treat people in the clinic, I, I don't get really wrapped up in numbness and tingling. If somebody comes in and they, they report that they have numbness and tingling or they have pain in that area, whether it be the lumbar spine or the cervical spine, I don't, I don't get wrapped around the axle for that. And there's, there's a lot of reasons for that. Number one is whenever you have spinal surgery to address pain, and pain is the main complaint, spinal surgery is really not that, really not that um, successful at alleviating pain. Uh, they're trying to get better and better. They're doing more minimal minimally invasive procedures to try to address pain. But for the most part, surgery is not very effective at, at treating pain. Um, and so whenever somebody says that they have severe back pain or they have numbness and tingling, the, the very structure of the, the spinal nerve roots, um, you can have numbness and tingling without any, um, with, without any significant nerve root compression. And whenever you start to have significant nerve root compression, you're gonna have hard neurological signs that are gonna be very hard to ignore. <clears throat> if somebody comes and they tell me that they have weakness in a particular muscle or a particular region of the body, that's gonna get my antenna up a little bit. But we're not talking about like, well, I can dumbbell press 85 pounds with this arm and I can do 75 pounds with this arm. That's not the type of weakness that we're talking about. The type of weakness that I'm talking about is if a guy your size comes in and says, I was supposed to press 175 or six yesterday and I walked in and I failed at 95 pounds. That's going to be a very hard neurological sign because there's only one thing that could cause that amount of weakness that fast and that's going to be neurologic um, impairment right so the the nerve the motor the motor units are not working and they're only not working because the nerve uh, or the innervation to those motor units has been impaired or it's been hindered and so that's when whenever you told me that you couldn't press 95 pounds like the decision was already made for you that you needed to go and see a surgeon but you're still in the vast minority of people because most individuals with herniated discs, well, one, most people with herniated discs are never going to know that they have them. They're never going to know that they have them because most people don't go to the doctor for every ache and pain that they have. The people who do go to the, the doctor because they have back pain or they have neck pain, if they have advanced imaging like an MRI, they're going to see that they have herniated discs. But even now, radiologists are putting that into their, their assessment. Whenever they read radiology, they're putting the statistics into the people's findings to say at 45 years old, the prevalence of herniated discs in the cervical spine is this percentage of people, that this 
this finding is found in asymptomatic people and stuff like that. So the very presence of herniated discs is not the issue. It is the hard neurological sign of nerve root impingement. That's what that's what gets people worked up, and then that's that becomes the that becomes the point where once you cross that threshold, then you need to see a surgeon because this is now outside the bounds of what physical therapy or tincture of time could could help. Understood. So, so I think the one of the main takeaways there for the layman, uh, you know, who's who has experienced pain, uh, spinal pain of some mm -hmm. kind or will, because those are the only two categories you are either have, or you will. Um, I think that, yeah, I think that's fair. Right. I think the takeaway is, um, surgery is not a solution for pain necessarily. Um, and herniation of a disc is not necessarily the cause of the pain. Yes. I think, um, the, the most recent statistics I saw is I think it's, um, they're pretty settled on about 96% of back pain is what we call non-specific uh, non mechanical low back pain. So the back hurts, but even with advanced imaging, we cannot figure out one, one specific cause if there's one particular pain generator. Um, it's a very small percentage of back pain that comes in that we can correctly identify and say that this is because of degenerative disc disease or that this is caused by a nerve root impingement or something like that, like mechanical back pain or just whenever the back hurts, whenever you move it is something that's fairly universal to humans. And surgery is really not that, that, um, effective at treating that back pain. Now, of course, everybody knows someone, right. Who had back surgery that made them better, right. Everybody knows that miracle doctor in Las Vegas or, Seattle or whatever, and that they went and saw that person, the person did surgery on them, and then immediately they were better. And then all of their little friend group or whatever starts trying to go and see this particular miracle worker. The, the fact of the matter is, is all spine surgeons, whether they be neurosurgeons or orthospine surgeons, they do the same techniques. They do the same techniques. They're all trained at the same place, right? Nobody's doing any of these surgeries any different than anybody else. Um, so what that tells you is that placebo is a hell of a drug, right? That if you, if you buy into it and it, if you buy into it, then there's the potential that it's going to be, that it's going to be helpful. But whenever you look across like longitudinal studies and you look at large populations, uh, back surgery for just pain as the primary complaint is really not that effective, not that effective at all. Now, whenever you take surgery for something like what you had, where there's a hard neurological sign of nerve root impingement, the outside of just bad outcomes, the success rate is nearly 100%. And you saw that as soon as you came out of surgery, how did your arm feel? As soon as I came out of surgery, I could lift my hand overhead again. So uh, exactly. cause and effect, it, it, it worked. It worked. But, mm. but the, the, I think the, one of the points you're, you're making also is other than the surgery potentially not being effective for people that don't have weakness, for example, um, surgery is, is risky. Surgery can certainly kill you when you yep. put yourself every in a single, medically induced coma and you start operating next to your spinal single, cord. That's risky. Yeah. Every single surgery that, that you've ever signed on for or will ever sign on for, you're going to sign a, a waiver or a release that says, and it's going to be spelled out in there and you'll kind of gloss over it because it just seems like the standard, like legalese, right? But every single surgery, you're, you're going to sign something that says that this surgery has, um, they'll talk about the benefits, but then they'll talk about the risks. The risks of this particular surgery would be, uh, does not alleviate pain. It could make pain worse. You could have bleeding, infection, death, and all that. And you, you kind of gloss over gloss over those but i mean those actually do happen those happen with and i wouldn't say they're still rare but i mean we we make a lot of decisions about things that are rare you know uh, i took care of i took care of an individual whenever i was stationed in uh in texas that uh, whenever i was doing my inpatient rotation very healthy 45 year old guy that had neck pain had neck pain, went in, had had surgery um, to have exactly the same thing that you had, but it was just neck pain. Um, he ended up uh, having a bilateral pulmonary embolism immediately after surgery, and he ended up dying. 
um, he ended up dying in the, the hospital, never left the hospital. Jesus. What he age? Died about, he died about five to seven days after the surgery. What he age was he? On life uh, he was 45, 46. Jesus. Yeah. This He's, is, this is what, no joke. Seven years. Don't, seven don't, years older than you. Don't, don't take surgery lightly, especially if it's uh, to solve a problem that surgery may not solve. Um, and don't, don't think yeah, of, what was, you know, issues really in your, in your spinal though. MRI as potentially the thing that's causing you to have a sore back, right? Yeah. What was powerful about this particular case was that by all, all accounts, like this was a pretty healthy dude. I mean, he was a, he was a big muscular guy. Looked like uh, the guy looked like he probably could have played like NFL football, you know? Um, and there was, there was no, there was no risk factor that would have made him more susceptible to something like that. It's just, I mean, like you said, whenever you bring somebody to the brink of death with general anesthesia, sometimes you don't come back. And then there are, there are things that happen that physicians really don't have a whole lot of control over for him. He just happened to have a, uh, develop a clot and this clot, um, mobilized and it went to his lungs. Um, and he was found fairly, sh fairly short after he, after he threw the clot. Um, and yeah, he ended up, he ended up on life support and they, they, uh, removed him from life support after about five days. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was kind of the, that was the first time I had ever had to take care of somebody. So I was taking care of this individual in the ICU. Um, and yeah, it's just, it, you never really think about it because I mean, people go in for meniscus surgeries and some people don't come out. Some people go in for tonsillectomies and they don't come out of surgery alive, you know? And so I think we, sometimes we gloss over the fact that whatever we're signing these releases and stuff like that, that, well, these don't apply to me. They just have to say this. Well, the reason why they have to say it is because it does happen. And you, outside of a, a medical practitioner just being negligent or them them being the ones that actually caused that bad outcome. If it's one of those things that just happens, like you've now released them from liability for that. Yep. Like things just happen. And it doesn't and, matter who's liable if you're dead, you know? Yeah, no, I, I mean, it yeah. doesn't. I mean, but if, if it's one of those injured, things, that, right? if one of those things happens and it wasn't, it was, wasn't the result of negligence. I mean, your family doesn't even get taken care of for yep. it, you know? Yep. And so and I think we all, I think a lot of us, and even, even myself too, whenever I've had to have surgery, like I still kind of gloss over the, the risk factors for, or the risks for surgery, you know, cause I'm like, ah, oh, that's, that's not me. I'm, I'm a healthy dude, but I've seen healthier guys have really bad outcomes coming out of surgery, you know? So definitely should not take it lightly, but yep. in a case like you, you know, had you have not had the surgery, what's likely to have happened is that you would have had pronounced atrophy to the point of where you would not have been able to rehab it. And that you would have probably lost a lot of the function in that arm because that was just the severity of it. So whenever you look at the the risks versus the rewards, that was actually probably one of those those cases that I would probably I would have probably made the same decision as you that it's worth it's worth the the function of my arm to to take the risk. And then you you mitigate the risk by the things that you already do, right? I mean, you're within a healthy body weight, you're a healthy dude make good lifestyle choices, like all those things, like the reduce your risk, but the risk is still never zero. Yep. hundred percent. So let's talk about the next step of the story. So, um, I, I know that there's an issue and I'm, I'm going to share this, this, uh, part of the story to help those of you that are having trouble navigating the medical system. <clears throat> because when I was younger, um, I was under the impression that you could, you could, you could go to an authority or an expert and trust them based on their position in society or their title. And I think that's one of the most important things to, to understand. Uh, and, and probably you can't call yourself a mature adult until you do understand it. That that is not the case. You cannot trust someone based on their title or their position or their, their uh, stated expertise. Um, and this most certainly applies to the medical community. There are probably five plus examples that I have direct experience with where if I followed the advice of the person responsible for being the expert, I would have had a significantly more negative outcome. And I've had a few negative outcomes under the care of people that I trusted. And those are the things that really wake you up. So I'm entering the system with this in mind. I don't have a GP. I went to a, uh, an urgent care to try to get a referral. 
and the urgent care, um, I think it was, an, it was either an RN or a PA, uh, had never seen what I had and referred me to an osteo. I said, well, you know, based on, I, I do know a couple of people that have had this, and I, I would like to see a, neuro, a neurosurgeon. And he, he refused, so he prescribed me physical therapy. Luckily, I have a PPO, so I went to PT. The PT was not helpful. Didn't understand my lifestyle, didn't understand strength, all the stuff that, that you get when you hire a guy like Will, who's both an SSC and a PT. Ended up going to see the surgeon. Um, here in Boise with this population boom, it's really hard to get in with any talented doctor at the moment or, or, or a surgeon. Um, so I uh, was lucky to get an appointment. I had imaging done the same day. And then as soon as I walked out of the uh, imaging um, center, I got a call from the doctor's office. And the doctor said, hey, can you come back today? Let's review your images. Awesome. That's good service. Three appointments in one day, one straight back. And she said, yeah, I mean, I think this is pretty clear, cause and effect, show me the image. And she's like, yeah, you need to get this addressed. And I said, I, that, I had spoken to you, Will, the night before. You had, uh, you had confirmed that based on the symptoms, you believe that's the right course of action. I talked to Rip, who'd had this surgery himself. And uh, she said, you know, I don't want to alarm you, but, but you might want to do this soon, and we can do this pretty quickly. And I was like, we can do it tomorrow if you want. I'm, you know, I made the decision in advance of being here. Um, and so we, we scheduled the surgery for the next day for the next day. Uh, and to your point about, about the risk of, of this sort of thing, the first thing I did that evening was have an emergency conversation with my trust lawyer and get all my documents in order. So if something happened, my family's taken care of, right? That's how serious this stuff is. So, so don't take it lightly. Um, one, one thing uh, that I think is just interesting for those of you that kind of like the, the mechanics of this stuff that I, that I wasn't sure about, was the nature of the, the operation. So Will, um, I'll give you just a quick summary of, of what I was thinking about in our discussion, and then it, it'd be great to get some more color on it from you, because um, you understand this to a pretty detailed level. So um, essentially, my understanding of the surgery is that the damaged pieces of the disc that are herniated need to be removed in a process called a discectomy. If there's enough of that disc protruding that has to be trimmed out, uh, you then need to, to, for structural integrity, you need to replace that with a, with a bony segment, in this case, a cadaver bone. Um, when that thing is installed, the vertebrae above and below need to be roughed up, almost like um, sanding a surface uh, to prepare it for paint. So that way, the, uh, the, the bone, the biological bone that's alive knows to, to heal and fuse with the cadaver bone. And then <coughs> the, uh, the whole structure is secured in place with a plate and screws. And I can, I can show an image of that too. Um, the night before, if you remember, I was calling you asking you to verify something because Rip had this surgery, but he had no plate and screws, uh, which apparently is not, is not done nowadays. And you, re you reassured me that uh, this was necessary. My concern was I have a narrow throat, so I have breathing issues. I, I was worried about having something sitting behind my esophagus that might actually push into it and narrow my throat further. I was also worried about my ability to do jujitsu again. Um, and, and obviously when you have a, a fusion, the vertebrae above and below the fusion um, are, are bear the brunt of more pressure. Um, but having hardware in there just seems to me like additional risk, right? Because what if it comes loose? What if there's a, a screw that comes out slightly? You know, the, the doctor told me about a patient where one of the screws bore its way through the esophagus and the the patient found it in their stool. Um, you know, the hardware worried me. So, so Will, would you mind sharing what you know about um, the nature of repairing the sort of injury? Yeah. So, um, whenever you do a, a micro, like uh, what most people would have if they had um, surgery is they'd have a micro discectomy, which they basically just remove the part of the disc that's herniated out. In your case, what they actually did is they did a disc replacement, but they didn't. But um, so they, they go in, they go in and they, they go in through the, the anterior portion of the neck. They kind of move all the soft tissue out. Right. And then what they do is they, they, they basically, they remove the disc. So they, they stabilize, they stabilize the disc or the, the vertebrae. They remove the entire disc. They remove the entire disc. 
and then they put a spacer in between in between the two vertebrae where the disc has been removed. So now you have a, an intrabody spacer that sits in between the two vertebrae. And then you have a plate that sits on the front part of the vertebrae. Now, whenever Rip, whenever Rip had the had the surgery, all they did was they had bony fusion and they had kind of essentially the same type of plates as what you'd have like if you broke your if you broke your forearm. It was just a just a metal plate. But the thing with the metal plates is the metal plates don't don't they don't flex, they don't move at all. And so what it did is it caused a very, very rigid, a very rigid um, uh, fusion. And because it was very rigid, the, the point that became the, the weak link was either the vertebral bone or the screws themselves. So there was a larger complication rate with screws breaking or with people ending up having like fractures in their, their vertebrae because there's, there's very little movement in the plate so that causes the the screw to kind of move within the vertebral body um ronnie coleman ronnie coleman whenever he had his initial initial surgery um on his back what ended up happening as far as what i've i've been able to piece together was he had that happen so he ended up having a post-operative infection and the screws ended up pushing through the rest to the vertebral bone and that's where his hardware failed the first time so uh, since then he's had to have multiple like reconstructive surgeries to try to salvage that but with what you had the type of the type of um plate that they used for you it actually allows for a little bit of movement so it's kind of almost like an x-shaped like an x-shaped um uh plate and they have screws that go on the four corners. And with this type of plate, it allows for a little bit of movement. So the, the, the plate actually moves a little bit and it, lo it levels the strain or the stress of movement through those four corners. So the plate is actually taking up some of the, some of the motion stress, not the screws. Whenever it's a very rigid plate fixture, it's the screws that are the ones that are that are taking up the stress with movement. So rather than what Rip had or could have had many, many years ago, this is a much more, this is a much more, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, <clears throat> this, this type of, this type of fusion is more for somebody who has an active lifestyle that we're expecting them to, to continue to do things for a long time because it's going to still allow some degree of motion without the risk of hardware failure. The risk of hardware failure for the type of um, fusion that you had is very, very low because of the type of plate that they use. But just to, just to be on the safe side, they do the bony fusion as well. And just like you said, they go in there and they cause a little bit of trauma to the vertebral body to cause the, the body to stimulate this, this, this healing process. And so they put the, they put the shards of bone on the side of the vertebrae as well. And then that kind of just stimulates the body to kind of fuse that bone to this roughed up surface of the, of the vertebrae. So based on what you said, so you I'm incorrect about the, uh, I'm incorrect about the, uh, the partial disc stuff. So was, they, they took out the whole damn disc and replaced it. Yeah. With so whenever, I, whenever I talked to you the first time, I thought that they were going to do a micro discectomy, but they actually did a disc removal and they put a spacer in there. Got it. Got it. Um, anything else to add, or, or if not, I can move on to the next part, which is uh, okay. No, I mean, I think I think you can move on. Okay. I mean, it's a very very successful surgery for what for what they were trying to um, to get with you. Right. By, by the way, this is a good opportunity. Before I forget, if uh, if you all are having low back pain or just want to hear more about Will, uh, he has a bunch of videos on our YouTube channel, Starting Strength YouTube channel, um, that are that are detailed and informative. If you like if you like this content, um, so. I get out of surgery, and as Will mentioned, the uh, the capability of my of me to you know the ability to 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 push my arm overhead, my hand overhead came back immediately. So that was that was a huge relief. Um, I was on pain pills for the weekend, you know, had the surgery on a Friday, was off pain pills by Monday, um, and then I was in a cervical collar for about two weeks, two days shy of two weeks. Uh, and then I, I was talking to Will throughout that, that time period, just, I mean, training as much as I've been training with barbells and with martial arts over the past 22 years, you know, 
um, it was very difficult, very psychologically difficult to, uh, to sit on my ass. Um, so I'm, I'm on one hand, I'm itching to get back to training. On the other hand, um, I never want to have my neck opened up again. And, and of course, doctors being doctors, um, they want to limit their liability as much as possible. So my doctor who's talented, she's, she's, uh, you know, the surgeon was UCLA educated, has done a bunch of these really impressive gal, um, made the same recommendation that you would expect that rip talks about all the time and no shit. One of those recommendations was not to lift more than 10 pounds overhead, um, which, which I don't know if is correct or not. And she'll readily admit that there is no standard of, of care for recovery from something like this. So their incentive is to be as cautious as possible. Um, and, and, but the, the, what I pointed out was if I were a 70 year old woman <coughs> with, uh, osteopenia, bone mineral density loss, um, would the recommendation be the same? And the answer of course is yes. So this is just, uh, uh, medical advice that does not apply to the individual necessarily. So, um, you know, I could have gone through the standard protocol. Um, so first of all, I need, I need to thank, uh, rip and all the people behind starting strength for, for getting me here to where I'm at. Right. Cause without starting strength, I, I would not have been able to do the sports that I love for about 10 years. So about 10 years of activity, thanks to strengthening my neck without starting strength, I would not have noticed that the damn thing wasn't working. It was the overhead press that indicated to me that something's wrong. Um, and then, and then here we are afterward, what I'm learning through your rehab process, Will, is that I don't know what would be more effective at rehabbing this injury other than the overhead press. And we'll talk about why in a little bit, but um, do you have anything to add when it comes to doctors, surgeons covering their ass, standard recommendation for rehab, <clears throat> and kind of any advice for people listening to, to how to navigate that process if they're in my situation? The, the physicians and the physical therapists and all that, the people who give you these recommendations, like it, they mean well, they mean well. It's not, it's not just to cover their ass. They're, they're also trying to protect you. They're trying to protect you. And <clears throat> I remember an orthopedic surgeon that I worked with uh, many years ago, one of the best orthopedic surgeons I've ever known. I, I asked him about the 10 pound, the, the 10 pound um, <clears throat> restriction. And what he told me is he was taught that that's about what a gallon of milk weighs. And so in their training that um, they were taught that after surgery, nobody really needs to be able to lift more than about a gallon of milk out of the refrigerator. And so that's what, that's where the 10 pounds supposedly came from was that that, that was a, a, a reasonable amount of weight for that. If somebody can lift a gallon of milk out of the refrigerator, then they can do most things to take care of themselves. What that doesn't take, take into account is people with young children, right? Like there's plenty of times that you have to, you have to pick kids up. You have to do things like that, you know, and it's, it's certainly your kids are going to be more than 10 pounds, but they mean well, whenever they give you that recommendation. Um, they're also, they're, they're trying to take care of you first and foremost. That's every single physician that's out there. They make their decisions for the most part based off of what they think is best for the patient. The fact that they spent 15 years of their life getting qualified to do what your surgeon just did for you is a secondary concern, but it's definitely still up there, right? She doesn't want to lose her ability to continue to do neurosurgery because her entire life has been spent trying to become a neurosurgeon. You know, her entire livelihood is based on that. I got to pause the, you there the for a sec, Will. Let me pause you there real quick. I, I, I think in general, it's good to give people the benefit of the doubt, but I'm giving the medical community less of the benefit of the doubt than ever before. No shit. My 31-year-old wife who went to see her gyno because we're trying to get pregnant, without this gal even asking if she'd had COVID, recommended that she get the vaccine. And if you look at VARES, you can just see issue after <clears throat> issue after. So, so I, I, and I do believe that she means well, so I'll, I'll agree with you there, but I just, uh, I would just caution, I would caution. And I think this is kind of what you're getting to, right? Meaning well and giving the correct advice, um, are not necessarily the same thing. And that's an important distinction. Yeah. So the, the, the last, last thing that I was going to say with that, they mean, well, they are trying to protect themselves. The next thing is, is that you have to understand that like most of these individuals are untrained 
whenever it comes to the the actual stresses of lifting weights and heavy weight training because the vast majority of people do not do that there is no block of instruction in either medical school physical therapy school a nurse practitioner program or any of your residencies that deal specifically with the stresses of heavy weight lifting um, and so what ends up happening is decisions are made off of recommendations or things that that seemingly have face validity to it right that, well, it seems like it would make sense not to do this. Um, it, you know, I, I've been, I had a little bit of shoulder issues after I had um, the, the COVID vaccination. I had the shoulder issues because they gave me the COVID vaccination right in my subdeltoid bursa. So I got subdeltoid bursitis from just a, <laughs> just from a, a, an errantly, um, an errantly um, aimed COVID vaccination. <laughs> You know how to inject and, in the deltoid, man. You should have just grabbed the shot from them. <laughs> and so like I, so I'm dealing with this subdeltoid bursa, bursitis and it's not going away. And so finally I just wanted, I just wanted some naproxen that was not 200 milligrams. I just wanted regular naproxen and do a, a course of NSAIDs. And whenever I go in, they actually blamed my subdeltoid bursitis on heavy weightlifting. Just because like, I look like maybe I lift weights a little bit. And whenever he told me like the, the way that my shoulder was going to get better was whenever I stopped weightlifting, then it would get better. And I'm like, no, dude, the, the imaging definitely shows subdeltoid bursitis. That's a fairly rare, um, that's a fairly rare affliction. And it just so happens that that's exactly where I got my, my vaccination. And I just need the inflammation gone so I can get back to heavy weightlifting. And this guy like then goes off on this this tangent about how um, he's a sports medicine trained family practice physician. He's treated over two thousand. I am an expert. <laughs> yeah, and then he starts, and then but he didn't realize that I'm a physical therapist. I've been a I've been a physical therapist for eight years. I'm a board certified orthopedic clinical specialist. Like even though he's seen some shoulders. I have far more hours of treating shoulders than he does. He will but who's never, in the white lab coat, treat, Will, right? <laughs> yeah, he will never, ever, ever treat for the number of hours that I have. And anyways, it, yeah, but he was trying to make a recommendation on something that had face validity. If he would have asked me, how much do you bench press? And I would have said 385, he would have been just aghast. Because that doesn't make sense to someone who doesn't do what we do. Right. That sounds like that is that's negligent that's dangerous that's on the pale and that normal people shouldn't do that. And of course you're going to get hurt yep. whenever you do that. Whenever you look at the actual injury statistics of heavy weightlifting, it's one of the safest things that we can do. The injury rate is far less than anything else, but yet somebody comes in and they have some, some knee pain or whatever, and they're a cheerleader. Nobody is stepping in and saying, Whoa, why are you letting your daughter or your son do cheerleading? That is the most dangerous sport that we have in America. The, or the rate of catastrophic injury yeah. is far beyond anything else. It's even more than NFL football. They're not doing that because they're not trained in that. They're, they're making their decisions based off of face validity. Cheerleading looks fun. It looks, it looks relatively safe other than when mishaps happen. But whenever you actually study injury statistics, it is by far the most dangerous sport that anybody in America participates in. That's a, that's a normal, like kind of team sport, right? And heavy weightlifting is actually one of the safest things that we do, but then, you know, you go further and you look at like biomechanics, like there's actually more strain on my low back sitting in this chair than there is during a heavy squat. I mean, it's about four to five times my body weight is what my lumbar spine is being stressed with right now. And I mean, I'm a decently strong dude, but, I can squat three, maybe 3.2 times my body weight, but I'm not squatting four times my body weight. <clears throat> so and I'm not sitting. squatting four times my body weight and holding it at the bottom for, you know, we've been on this call now for about 40 minutes. <clears throat> I'm definitely not going to do a 40 minute pause squat. It's actually much more strain on my low back just sitting here. And then, you know, you look at, you know, stress recovery adaptation. We all go through, we all go through in our, our basic education, like Hans Selye's work and general adaptation syndrome and stuff like that. But 
there's never been something that has like pushed these clinicians to have to try to use that, that foundational knowledge and try to apply it on a day-to-day basis with patients because your neurosurgeon, you might've had a 10 or 15 minute consult with them. You know, they've got 10 to 15 minutes to kind of give you what they can give you. And then they got to move on to the next one because that's the only way to make their, their practice economically viable. In my, in my practice right now, because my, my paycheck is not tied to how many patients I see. Like I can see somebody for 45 minutes in a 45 minute evaluation. There's plenty of time for me to evaluate, go through medical history, do an objective exam, and then also provide education to them. But a five minute PCM appointment is not going to be able to do that. So if you look at PCMs primarily, like what do they have time to be experts in? They have to be experts in the things that they see all the time. They have to be experts in upper respiratory infections, in dermatological conditions, in ruling out cancer, all those types of things. And the things that normally come into a PCM's office, they don't have the bandwidth or the time, especially in their their, uh, professional practice, to be experts in weightlifting and Olympic lifting and things like that. They just don't have the bandwidth. We can't expect them to know everything. That being said, they're also in a position of authority. And so what most people would not be okay with, me being the exception, I would love for a physician to tell me, you know what, man, I don't know. Um, And we'll, we'll find out together. But most people would not tolerate that because like you said, physicians and medical practitioners or clinicians hold a a position of authority, right? They they own a position of authority or they own a position of, um, of, um, authority in their, in their field. Right. So whenever you go to them, you're actually going there for answers. You want them to provide you with answers. And there's several studies out there that show that that's what patients want. They want answers from their physician. And then whenever that's thrust upon a physician, they're going to make, we'll call them scientific wild ass guesses. They have, they have education and then they're just making a wild ass guess based off of this education that they got 15 or 20 years ago that they still kind of use every day, but not specific to that particular subject. They're making a, an educated guess on something that's virtually mostly um, face validity because they don't have the time or the bandwidth, nor is it good for their professional practice to become an expert in that particular field. And the trouble the with that is people who come through are not going to be you. Right. Yep. And the, and the trouble with that is uh, they're not making a distinction. They're either not being honest with themselves mm-hmm. or with you as the patient about things that they have an understanding of versus things that ha- they have an impression of. And we're all guilty of this, but, but it can be catastrophic if you're in a position of authority and you're giving someone advice and you say the thing that you're guessing about with the same amount of authority and conviction that you say the thing that you're certain about from your own experience. And I think that's where a lot of these problems come into play. The, the, a few themes that, that uh, jumped out at me when you were talking were things aren't always what they seem. Um, the distinction between having an understanding of something and having an impression of something. Um, and then just because something sounds plausible does not mean that it's true. And if you, if you fall victim to these logical errors when it comes to your health, I mean, you're the only one ultimately responsible for your health. Um, so, so I only advise, I, I mentioned this because I've smashed my head up against it so many times in the medical uh, system, and it seems to be getting worse over time, that I think it's important to understand these things. So Will, from here, um, we can do a short summary of, uh, of what you have me working on uh, how, how we're rehabbing the injury. And then um, maybe we'll do round two, depending on on how much we cover and if there's anything else missing or if anything else happens throughout the recovery process. Okay. Yeah, so for right now, um, you're you're out of your, your initial post-operative window, right? So the, the incision is well healed. Um, you're able to shower. So that's kind of right after surgery, that's your first your first benchmark before you can really start activity. Four, right? four weeks post-op today. Yeah. So as soon as you come out of, come out of surgery, you, you can't start really start activity 
until you can keep you can keep up with general cleanliness, right? So having a surgery on your arm or something like that, having a, a big bulky post-op dressing, um, you can't go to the gym and get sweaty and stuff like that because that's a good way to get a post-operative infection. So that's the first benchmark. We have to wait until your your incisions healing well or in that you can shower. Once you can you can actually maintain general cleanliness of the area, then you can start activity. As it, as it stands to reason, things that you've done prior to surgery that are not directly impactful to the surgerized area, things that you can start doing fairly fairly immediately, right? So for you, um, you were in the you were in the cervical collar for about two weeks after the surgery, which is kind of standard practice for the type of fusion that they did. Um, we could have you start walking, we could have you start biking, we can have you do all those things very, very early on because with the, the cervical collar, what it's, its main um, job is to do after a cervical fusion is to keep you from being able to rotate your neck, all right? Because where the bony fusion, where they're trying to do that rotation about the neck is what can cause the bony fusion to, to fail. So that's that that starts immediately. Now bones, bones heal fairly fast. So um, once you get out of that and once they remove the cervical collar, then you're Can I pause you there, Will? I just had a question about yeah. that. Hopefully I don't throw you off course. Um, Rip talks all the time about bones uh, bone injuries healing more when there's movement. Um, but this is not, th these are not, uh, this is not an existing bone. It's not, it's not, it's not your rib cage. Yeah, this, this is, this not, is a this new is piece that needs to fuse into place. So having it, having it sit still is pretty damn important. Yes. Yes. For this, this is definitely one of those things that tincture of time is definitely needed. What, what Rip's talking about, and he's totally correct, is that bone injuries, uh, bones tend to heal and remodel through compression. So whenever you put compression on a bone, it, it forces the, the, the activity within the bone to increase to, to increase the density or the thickness of the bone. And so somebody with like stress-related injuries or something like that to their bones, compression is actually needed. So you have somebody with like a stress fracture, at, as soon as the acute pain from the stress fracture is, it starts to abate, then you have to start loading, loading it appropriately to actually get it to heal. Right. In your case, we actually just need we just need soft tissue healing. We need we need bone healing to start kind of gluing those two those two structures together. And that that there's nothing else that's going to do that other than just time. And even though most of the rotation of the of the neck happens um, at C C one, isn't it? That you still get some rotation down at C four C five. C one C two is where the vast majority of rotation comes from. But you still get you still get rotation through here. I mean, there's there's a lot of combined motion in all of the segments of the cervical spine. Yeah. So then now you're at the now you're at the part of um, a post-operative course um, for a fusion where now you can work uh, you can work range of motion. So you can start working partial range of motion, both active and passive. So um, as a as a strength coach, it's easy enough to have somebody do some neck exercises to to work on range of motion, right? Then the main thing that we have to start doing is that if I just, if as a strength coach, if I just allow you to continue to detrain, then what's going to end up happening is you're going to end up in a, where we could start to, we could start doing some things to get you back to training. We start to, we push those out much, much farther to where then where you start back, you know, eight, 12, 16 weeks from now, you're going to be at a significant deficit from where you, where you could be. So right now, what we're doing from you from a strength component is actually just working on motor control. And I think you could probably talk about this a little bit better than, than I can, because I could, I could talk to you about the scientific ins and outs about motor control. But, you know, what was the first thing you told me about whenever you started trying to press a wooden dowel over your head? Yeah. Like how did, how did that move? I'll give you the, uh, the knuckle dragger, uh, uh, layman's view on what the hell's going on here. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it just felt like my muscle memory had been reset. And, uh, I mean, the muscle mass is still there. I haven't really had much visible atrophy, but it just felt like I could turn the damn thing on. I couldn't, I couldn't switch on the motor units and it took a lot of, <clears throat> took a lot of mental effort. Um, and, and when I focused on it intently, it felt like I could switch on more motor units, 
but even with that maxed out, uh, a 10 pound bar going up overhead might take me two or three seconds to try to figure, like I have to mentally focus on it and then get the, the, the motor units to behave the way that I'm trying to get them to behave. And it's, uh, it's fatiguing mentally and physically to press three sets of 10 with 10 pounds overhead. Yeah. And I mean, your layman's terms is exactly what's going on because of the, because of not only the, the nerve injury, but then the, the, the follow on surgery, um, the, the motor control of that area is not what it was before. You still have, you still have the, the, the motor planning. So like the part of your brain that, that knows whenever you want to do something, it kind of, pulls out the instructions of how to do that you've still got the instructions but it's almost like if you're putting like together like a like a lego set right and you've got bags of legos and i've got a whole bunch of kids so like i've had to do this far too often but you've got it like bag one bag two bag three bag four and whenever you look at the instructions it says okay here's what you do for bag one here's what you do for bag two what you've basically done is you still have the instructions but all of the Legos are taken out of bags and just thrown into the box. Now you have to kind of pick through and sort through which ones need to go together to make this. And that's basically what we're doing is we're just, we're just going through and we're just sorting what you need to do low level, low energy tasks and start to do them more efficiently. And by doing that, I mean, we're still following the surgeon's uh, recommendations because you're not going over a, over 10 pounds, but we're taking that 10 pound restriction, but we're actually making it a training effect by making you try to move more efficiently and having you have those, those spots where you're hitting here. And it's like, you can't, you can't figure out how to make it go up anymore. The, the conscious input to that is going to help um, fine tune those motor processes much faster. You know, I mean, bodybuilders have been doing this for a long time where they, you know, as they, as they do like a bicep curl or something like that, they sit there and concentrate on the muscle. There is, there is a conscious input to motor contraction as far as fine tuning it. And then your, your cerebellum, every single time you do a motor task, it's going to try to make you do that, that motor task the next time a little bit better. And whenever you do that motor task, it's going to take a carbon copy of the instructions that were sent to the body. And it's going to take a report back from the body as far as what happened. And it's going to change those instructions a little bit. And it's going to keep trying to coach you until you finally get to the point where, you know, probably within another week or two, you're going to do an overhead press. And instead of stopping and having to figure it out and then go up, it's actually going to move very, very smoothly, you know, and whenever that happens, you're you're going to feel that little click back here. And what that means is now your intended movement, your executed movement, they matched up. And now whenever the cerebellum, it goes into fine tune that motor pattern, it's actually fine tuned as much as it needs to be. And so then you're going to have that motor pattern back and it's going to be moved. It will move efficiently. And then as we get more and more tissue healing in this bony fusion starts to take, then we can start loading it progressively. Yeah. But that's, that's what we're doing right now is actually just working on motor control. Yep. And well, any, any strength coach could do that. Sure. But, but, but it takes someone like you who's done, how many of these have you rehabbed? Uh, cervical, cervical fusions. Let's see. I, I probably do about 10 to 12 a year. Right. About so 10 to 12 a year. You've done this before. And, and in a position like mine, post-surgery, I don't want my neck operated again. I want, I want you to find that careful balance mm. of I'm doing, uh, you know, applying productive stress and doing something that's beneficial and I'm not increasing my risk of having the damn thing fail. Right. Um, right. so we'll, we're at around the hour mark. I think, uh, most people don't have the attention span to go much longer than this. We've got more to talk about. Um, why don't we wrap up with you just briefly summarizing how you're programming me for now? And then maybe we'll do another video, um, long one or short one, whatever, uh, following up once I'm a few months post-op and I've gotten back to some semblance of training. Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing, first thing is that, um, you, you have to restore normal range of motion. You have to restore normal range of motion. 
Um, and normal range of motion does not mean that it has to be the same as what it was preoperatively. You just restore whatever normal range of motion you can get. Reason being is if you just sit there and you just try to keep your neck braced in one position, you're going to lose muscle mass and you're going to lose, you're going to lose um, freedom of movement in your neck. And for lots of, lots of things, especially driving, you need to have a lot of freedom of motion in your, in your neck. But the, also, the other thing that happens is it takes a lot of movement throughout the day to maintain the to maintain the um, the health of joints throughout the body, right? And so by doing low level partial range of motion stuff throughout the day, you're 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 not directly treating the fusion, but you're also but you're maintaining the health of all of the joints within your neck. And then you're also preventing things like um, the like muscles getting shorter, um, adaptive shortening by just keeping your, yourself in one in one um, position. Like if you were to put yourself in an arm cast for eight weeks and then take the arm cast off, everything is very stiff and does not move very well. And that comes from something called adaptive shortening. So we have to have that. And that's just in order for you to, to be a high level strength trainee again, like you have to be able to move your, you have to be able to move your neck. So we're doing that, but we're doing that in safe ranges of motion where you're not likely to um, cause the bony or the plate fusion to fail. Um, and we're being, we're being conservative with that. But then whenever it comes to activity, we can't violate the, the, um, the surgeon's restriction of 10 pounds, but what can we do? We can do 10 pounds and I can make you do a whole bunch of them, but we're really focusing on motor control because like you said, you have not had any marked atrophy of your, your left upper extremity, right? So the muscle's still there. It's just, you can't activate it the way that you want to activate it. So that's, that's priority. Number one is getting it to do exactly what you want it to do. And then that's going to take a little bit of time and all that time that it's taken you to kind of reset the configurations on how to recruit those motor units effectively. As we do that, you've gone through at that same time, tissue healing to where now you're as you're able to recruit motor units more effectively, you've gone through more tissue healing. So now we can start loading it and still keep you within what the, the protocol for an ACDF or an anterior cervical discectomy infusion um, surgery. We're going to keep you along that and we can do that concurrently. Like we can have you working on something that's going to benefit you from a strength training um, aspect down the road while we're still keeping you there. And then, like you said before, we also have to just keep in mind that your, your mental health is very strongly tied to physical activity. And so, you know, there's no threat to us putting a cervical collar on you and having you ride a bike for 25 or 30 minutes. We can still keep your, we can still keep your conditioning up. We just have to balance that out with less activity the next day. Right. Because we still need you to be able to recover from that. And so nothing that I'm doing is any different than what I do as a starting strength coach. It's just, it's just progressive, progressive exposure to stress. The, the stress that we're progressing or that we're exposing you to right now is very light, but we're still, as you've noticed, like your uh, prescription for the exercises started with very high, high repetition sets. And really that's just to get you moving a whole bunch of times. Now, as you've gotten a little bit better and as the movement has become more smoothly, it's become more smooth, then we're starting to chop it back down to where it's more manageable sets because then now you're activating motor units more appropriately. So now we have to start to try to transition you back to what a normal set would look like. Got it. Okay, I think that's a good spot to leave off. Um... It'll be really interesting to see how things progress, you know, when you can only overhead press 10 pounds. Mm. I did try the 33 pound bar and I, I got one rep out of it. Uh, when you can only do that, it's, 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 you know, and this is the pro the psychological problem with injuries. You're just like, shit, is this how it's going to be forever? And, and if you've gone through the process of a linear progression or something like that, you know, that the answer is no, as long as you manage it correctly. So that's a good place to leave off for now. Um, will, are you taking patients at the moment? Are you taking clients at the moment in either of your practices? Um, yeah, I still have, I still have some, I, I'm not taking patients. I'm not taking patients. I've got more than enough patients in my, my day-to-day -day job, but I do have some small ability to take on additional clients. Cool. And how do people get in touch with you? Um, so honestly, the, the vast majority of people who contact me for, um, for strength 
strength coaching or rehab coaching, contact me through Instagram. Cool. Um, I would say that, uh, the, the best thing to do or the thing to not do is don't, don't email me directly and put at the very top of your message that you, um, you need my help. You want my help. I'm the only person who can help you, but I'm not going to pay you for it. Such as, um, I, um, I get, I get about two dozen of those every single week. And so I've just, I've actually just stopped responding to those. Um, it's just taken too much of my time to respond to people who, who want, um, I don't need any social media exposure. Um, so don't tell me that you can get me um, exposure on social media. If I help you, I don't need it. Um, <laughs> I do have some, some ability to take on clients right now. I'm getting pretty full, but I could probably take on a few more. Well, we're lucky to have you in the community. You know, there's only a couple of SSCs that have your skill set. Um, and you've got a wealth of experience. So I understand why people are seeking it out. Uh, it's funny that they think they can get it for free. Um, it's a shame really. And, and hopefully conversations like this will help people that, that can't afford direct help from you. But um, what's your handle on Instagram, Will? Uh, it's Morris, M-O-R-R-I-S. What? Well, shit, what is it? I think it's Morris DPT-SSC. Hold on. I'd have to, I'd actually have to check on that because I don't look myself up. Shows you how much you care about your social media. Yeah, Morris DPT-SSC. Really, my my Instagram account is really just my training log. That's basically all I all I use it for because it just makes for an easy way to just makes for an easy way to um, keep up with my training. No shirtless selfies on, on your Instagram, Will? There are no shirtless selfies. On <laughs> okay, good. Nobody, nobody wants to see this, man. Like, I'm, built like a, I'm built like a garden gnome. I look like one too. If I just had like a little white beard, I would, I would just be a, a lawn ornament. Oh, shit. Well, Will, thank you again for um, agreeing to take me on as a client. Uh, thanks for the conversation and we'll, we'll do this again. Okay. Sounds good, man.